Great to be with you this morning. I always like being here. You know, it just seemed like uh, it was uh, just six years ago that I had graduated from here, and time goes so very quickly. Russell, you will be departing soon, huh? You did make that announcement. I'm not putting my foot in my mouth, right? Uh, we're going to miss you. I'm going to miss you, brother. And uh, it's just hard to think of the school without you, but I'm, I'm really excited. I'm saddened for you in one way. Um, that you're leaving, but I'm really excited for you. In fact, a number of people are coming up to me asking me when I'm leaving. I don't know why they, they ask that, and, um, but I'm excited for you, brother, to go out and, uh, we just, that's, that's neat, and, uh, let us know what happens with you, huh? But good to be with you guys. Last week we had, uh, our winter camp at Arrowhead and had a great time and had Linguini Bertolini there. And um, the mad Italian. And uh, we had a tremendous time up there. We were at the Hilton um, up at Arrowhead. It's quite funny. People ask me, you know, well, the Hilton, is it too nice? Well, we're finding that we get better prices from the hotels oftentimes than we do from Christian camps. And so we had the privilege to have Dewey Bertolini with us for the weekend. And uh, about 15 people came to know the Lord. And uh, even last night, hearing some of their testimonies, we had a little thing that we call an afterlife after after the Sunday evening service and just to hear some of their testimonies um, just it was so neat and I think one of the blessings of the ministry in the college department is just the fact that when somebody gets one to the Lord there's already a natural uh, follow-up process already been built into it because they're brought by friends and so it's been neat to see our people uh, pairing up with those people who have committed their life to Christ and so we were even praying early for them this morning just that they would be mature in the faith but great to be with you I just I like being here uh, I guess because I went to school here and got in trouble with Gail Bird's son a lot. Um, but uh, we just had a tremendous time when I was here. I think it was probably, uh, had to be two of the funnest years in my life uh, in many ways. I guess now there's more responsibility and maybe sometimes more pressure. But uh, good days uh, when I was here and I managed to get some grades while I was here and get through. And, uh, but it's neat to be out and to be in the work of the ministry and to be back with you. Because I'm reminded that I was there too. I don't look old, but I'm 42. Uh, no, come on. I'm just kidding. <laughs> come on. I'm glad we have power too. It is good to, to be able to be heard. Oftentimes when uh, we go up to the prison, up at Wayside, up the 5 Freeway, you have to speak to the inmates. And it's in a room like this size and there's no sound. And I just come out absolutely hoarse. But I'm glad I could be with you this morning. And I wanted to talk about relationships. I, I hope that's okay. It's what the Lord put on my heart. I want to talk to you about that whole idea of relationships between a, a guy and a girl, between a man and a woman, maybe even as it relates to your future. And um, I've come across something that I've, I've said before, um, and maybe you've heard this before, but I thought it was quite humorous as we go into this whole idea of relationships between men and women. But it's by a, by a guy by the name of Bob Phillips, and it's called The Ideal Wife, What Every Man Expects. Have you heard this before? This is what every man expects out of a relationship, that the, the ideal wife or girlfriend. Always beautiful and cheerful, could have married movie stars, but wanted only you. Hair that never needs curlers or beauty shops. Beauty that won't run in a rainstorm. Never sick, just allergic to jewelry and fur coats. She insists that moving furniture by herself is good for her figure. She's an expert in cooking, cleaning, cleaning house, fixing the car or TV, painting the house and keeping quiet. Talk to Bob. Her favorite hobbies are mowing the lawn and shoveling snow. <laughs> she hates charge cards. Oh. Her favorite expression is, what can I do for you, dear? Thinks that you have Einstein's brain but looks like Mr. America. Wishes you could go out with the boys so she can get some sewing done. <laughs> Uh, loves you because you're so sexy. 
that's funny. That's the ideal wife, what every man expects. This is what he gets. She speaks 140 words a minute with gust up to 180. She was once a model for a totem pole. Girls, just wait, the man is coming. She's a light eater. As soon as it gets light, she starts eating. <laughs> Where there's smoke, there she is, cooking. She lets you know that you have only two faults, everything you say and everything you do. No matter what she does with it, her hair looks like an explosion in a steel wool factory. <laughs> How about this one? If you get lost, open your wallet, she'll find you. <laughs> okay, the ideal husband, what every woman expects. He will be a brilliant conversationalist, He's a very sensitive man, kind and understanding, truly loving. He's a very hard-working man. He's a man who helps around the house by washing dishes, vacuuming floors, and taking care of the yard. He's someone who helps his wife raise the children. He's a man of emotional and physical strength. A man who is as smart as Einstein, but looks like Robert Redford. What she gets, here's what she gets. He always takes her to the best restaurants. Someday he may even take her inside. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> he doesn't have any ulcers, he just gives them. Anytime he has an ideal in his head, he has the whole thing in a nutshell. There we go, a little revenge, girls. He's a well-known miracle worker. It's a miracle when he works. <laughs> I like this one. He supports his wife in the manner to which she is accustomed. He's letting her keep her job. He's such a bore that he even bores you to death when he gives you a compliment. That's pretty bad. He has occasional flashes of silence that make his conversation brilliant. <laughs> That's good. The ideal man and wife. It's funny, you know, as we think of relationships, isn't it? Hey, there's one more. Can I read it? I was just looking through some stuff. This is good. It's okay if we do this. You know, when I come to you guys, there's always like part of me that just wants to be like intense, like just come up and go, what are you doing for the kingdom of God? You know? And then there's another part that just, you know, I just want to enjoy you and, and listen to this one. <laughs> MacArthur told this one in a sermon. There's a story about a newlywed couple riding in a horse-drawn carriage headed for their honeymoon. Suddenly the horse bolted and the man said to the horse, that's one. They went a little farther and the horse bolted again. The man said, that's two. A little further and the horse bolted again and the man said, that's three. He turned around, took out a gun and shot the horse. Shocked at what she had just witnessed, the new wife exclaimed, what have you done? What, why'd you do that? The man replied, that's one. <laughs> That's brutal. That's brutal. <laughs> hey, I got it from MacArthur, Dr. MacArthur. That's good. Glad I can be with you. We're talking about relationships. Relationships. And I hope this morning, just in our brief time in the Word, that I'm not being redundant when I bring this topic to you. No doubt it's a topic that's spoken on many times in chapel and maybe in the course of a year, and maybe even as you have spent four years here, maybe some of you five, maybe some of you longer, you're gonna hear this reoccurring theme. But I hope that I come to you, uh, it's just so impacted my life in what we traditionally call a gray area that when I look into the Word of God, I find it to be no gray area at all. 
And as I begin to study about this, the Lord has just continued to work in my heart about this. In fact, Dewey and Walter and I will be heading up a kind of a youth conference down at the at Grace Church where they have all the Shepherds Conference come in and all the pastors flying in and this year they're doing something a little different they're doing what they call a youth conference a youth track not only with a leadership track and a family track but they have a youth track and so I was going to present this to them and I guess I've just been so caught up in this whole idea of relationships and namely that of moral purity and as I begin to study this topic I begin to find I'm like who has written anything significant on this and as I begin to read the Christian books and the Christian literature, I begin to find that there's not too many people answering too many questions on what the book says. In fact, most people are just calling this whole idea of moral purity a gray area, and they're leaving it to many people. And I know that Josh McDowell has spent a, a chapel with you a couple months back, and and, uh, you know, I heard a lot of stuff about that, and I'm not uh, trying to react to that, and I'm not, I don't have a polemic against me and my heart against you, and, uh, you know, a guy came up to me last night, sometimes, Russ, has this happened to you, you do people, you're speaking, and people think you're talking to them, and one guy, a guy almost came up, he was in tears, because he thought I was talking about him, and I, and I wasn't, and I want you to know that I don't have necessarily any of you in my mind, I just thought that this passage was so specific on this, that I wanted to let you know what it says on this whole idea of of moral purity. And I want you to know too that not all of you are dating right now, right? Oftentimes we always think, well, it's the guys and girls they're well, probably half of you are not dating. I could probably ask the girls that and they would agree to that. Um, um, so I know that, but I just come and I want to share the word with you. Many of you aren't dating, but you will be unless you're a celibate for the kingdom. Um, maybe you give yourself wholly to the Lord's work. You know, my wife, we had a couple over yesterday. You know, that was my wife. She, uh, she went through a stage, Dewey. You know, my wife, she, when I first met her, she was like, like, spunky. Maybe that's why I call my daughter Spelinky. No, I don't know. But she was like a fireball. I remember when I was 20 years old, I was just getting ready to come here. You know, I was lifting weights. I was getting my jumper ready. And she was in Lagos. And I was like, I was like, wow, this woman like knows God. I mean, I'm working on my three, you know, from the outside. And she's studying scriptures. And I was totally intimidated by, by her, you guys. I just thought, man, this girl's holy. And, you know, and I was intimidated by her. And, and, and she was just such a girl that loved the Lord and wanted to walk with the Lord that I was very, very attracted to that. And then she came out of that. And then she wanted to be um, just just go into mission work full time. And maybe that's what some of the. Uh, women here, you will be called to that, maybe to go overseas, to give your life, maybe without getting married. But obviously for us, God had something different for us. And, and as I begin to think about that, I just begin to think of relationships in general. I want you to open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. And I don't want to really give you, I know Josh McDowell people said, well, Scott, you know, I've heard this. I'll just be honest with you. You know, he, he was this and this and he scared a lot of people. Well, I, I think we understand him, don't we? Uh, an apologetical approach many times on a campus. But I want to give you a different look this morning. Not so much one from an apologetical side, but one from a biblical and expositional side so that we can understand what First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8 are saying on this whole issue of moral purity. And again, some of you aren't dating, that's fine, but I want you to know what God's Word is saying. Some of you will be dating, and so you need to know what it says. And whether that be you're dating or not, many of you are leading young people, and you need to know what the standard is and what the Word of God calls us to in this whole idea of moral purity in a relationship between a guy and a girl. Look at the scripture with me in verse 3. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in a lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. Father, we would pray that you would work this message in our heart. Father, I'm reminded even as I stand here and for you in many ways that God, it's only the Spirit of God that will do the work in each of the students' hearts this morning. God, thanks that your word's powerful, that we can just come and talk and explain it and exposit it, God, and that it will go out powerfully. Bless it, Father, in the hearing of your people today in your name. Amen. 
Now, we're in Thessalonians, and what you have to understand is a little bit about the Thessalonian culture, and I don't want to bore you with the whole historical background, but let me give you a little bit about the Thessalonian culture, because if you understand the culture, then you're going to understand why Paul wrote this, and you're going to know how it fit into this book. But in the Thessalonian culture, it was a very promiscuous one, you might say. In fact, they had five words in the Greek language that talked about the promiscuity and just the sexual looseness and immorality that was taking place in the culture. And I'll just run them by. You don't really have to write these down. If, if you want to, you can. But the first word they had was the word porne. Porne. Now, obviously, we would understand that we get our word pornography from that word. But porne here in the Thessalonian culture literally meant the purchasable one. The purchasable one. And it literally spoke of a prostitute. So here, within the Thessalonian culture, in the time when Paul wrote this book, there was a word known as porne, and it spoke of a prostitute. They also had a word there in the culture that was pornunane, pornunane, and uh, it was prostitution as a business. In other words, not just the single prostitute herself, but pornunane represented prostitution as a business. And no doubt here in the Thessalonian culture, there was a business of prostitution. They also had a word called palakake, which literally meant a concubine. And what this was here in the Thessalonian culture was a slave to fulfill sexual desire. It was a concubine that a man might use to fulfill his sexual desire. Then they had a word also by the word of etyra, etyra. And this was different than palakake. Palakake, again, was a concubine. Etyra was a mistress, a mistress. And this wasn't so much a slave as the previous one. This was a mistress who was a friend that was used for sexual fulfillment. A friend used for sexual fulfillment. And then they fifthly had a word uh, in their culture named moikos. And this spoke of an adulterer or an adulteress. So I speak those things here because we find them in the New Testament that when Paul came into this church, he was dealing with problems that were great, that were widespread, and immorality was running rampant in the culture. And you say, was it worse today than it was in Thessalonian church? What do you think? I'll tell you, no way. No way. See, we think, oh, we're evil. We're evil. Look at our society. And I grant it, yes, we probably live in one of the most humanistic, hedonistic uh, cultures that there is. But I want you to know that the Thessalonian culture, culture was no different than ours. In fact, I would point and show maybe even some arguments that it was worse than our culture today. And you say, well, what's the difference? One word, media. The reason that we see the culture in way we do today is media has bombarded it before our eyes and our mind so that we know what's going out there. But within here in the Thessalonian culture, there was tremendous problems with this whole idea of sexual immorality. And here in the culture, it was very common, tolerated, and customary, just maybe as it is today. Now, we would stop there for a second and say that Christianity from the outset has sanctified, now you know this, the sexual union within marriage. Outside of marriage, it is forbidden. Now, and I say that because you know what? I was speaking around this whole idea of purity to my college group. And one guy who was just new in the Lord a week ago, and this was two months ago, came up to me and he said, man, I've never heard that before. Because he came out a completely pagan background and he didn't know that, that this was to be within the marriage its union itself. And so this was a strange notion, I want you to understand, in this pagan society in which the gospel was brought, that there would be purity and that the union was to be preserved for the sexual union. And so these very for, various forms here that we've mentioned in those words show us that it was often tolerated and even encouraged to engage in such practices like that. Now, when Paul founded this church in Thessalonians, he founded it in the midst of this culture, obviously. And I think we see that in the book of Acts chapter 17, where he went into the synagogue, he preached the word of God, and a number of people responded to his message there. And so Paul preached the gospel, Another, a number of them became believers, they started and formed a church. But I think deep down in the back of Paul's mind, he knew the pull of the old habits in the flesh. And so he writes this book of Thessalonians to these people to do two things. In chapters 1 and 3, he defends the integrity of 
of his ministry. This is why he wrote the whole book of Thessalonians. In 1 through 3, he defends the integrity of his ministry. And I don't want to labor, but that's why he, he talks there about how we were with you and we were a nursing mother in 2-7, tenderly caring as one would tenderly care for her own children. For you recall, brethren, verse 9, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim the gospel. And you see in those chapters, he's defending himself. Because people are making accusations against him. So he does that one through three. And then he makes the second portion of the book here in four and five. And what he does in four and five is he deals with some practical issues that the Thessalonian church was facing. And the first issue he deals with in the church here was the call to moral purity. The call to moral purity. And I believe that the reason he addressed this issue first was because it was so important and because it was such a widespread problem not only in the culture but possibly even begin to creep into the church itself and so this passage that I want to exposit for you this morning kind of in a Bible study fashion just breaks down in three simple ways okay three ways that Paul breaks down the passage for us first the plea then the position and then the purpose the plea the position and the purpose now, I want to first look at you with you, the plea. Now, when we answer the question of the plea, when we describe the plea, it answers the question what God's standard is, okay? And I would like to answer a question for you this morning, if I can. I'd like to answer this question for you this morning. How far is what? Too far. How far is too far? And the reason I come before you this morning and say that is because I see very little literature or stuff in print that would speak on this whole issue. And I'm thinking, and I'm telling you because I'm looking at a group of leaders. I'm looking at the next generation in God's church that he's going to send you out and use. And you know what? If we don't tell our young people what the standard, then who is? I, at one time, I had a parent come to me on, in the college department on Sunday, and I, he, he, they said, boy, it's just really neat that you're teaching these things to these students and our children. And, and I said, it's great. They said, it's great, quote, that you start so early with them. And I said, start so early with them. Don't give me so much credit. Our junior high pastor, Ricky Holland, teaches on the role of a man and woman in 7th and 8th grade. And I said, Ricky, why do you teach on that in 7th and 8th grade? He says, for this reason, Scott, because if I don't tell them what they need to be and what the Bible says their role is in a relationship, then you can sure bet that the world will. And so we, it's on our backs to carry this message and to tell other people about it and no doubt to even call ourselves to purity that we would know what the standard is. But what's the plea? What is God's standard for us? And I would even in, in some ways address this to men. Now I know there's a number of women in here, but I want you men to especially keep your ears open on this because I got a couple pointed things that I would like to exhort you on. But first the plea, it's in verse 3. It says, for this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The first thing he says there is that, uh, he says, this is the will of God. You could say, namely, your sanctification, this is God's will for you. But he wants us to understand what God's will. Now, all of us, would we not? And all of the people that we would minister to want to understand what God's will is, don't they? I mean, don't you, as much as in my heart, want to desperately know what God wants us to do? We were praying this morning at 6. We pray every Monday morning. I'll tell you, it's really hard to pray at Monday morning at 6 when you've had a full day of church services on Sunday. But we were just praying, Lord... I want to know your will for what you want us to do in summer missions. Because I desperately want his agenda, not my agenda. And I think for you, don't you want to understand God's will for your life? Don't you want to know what the right thing to do is? Don't you want to know who the right person is today? Who the people are that you're supposed to stay away from? I mean, in any and all circumstances, we desperately want to understand what God's will is. And I think Dr. MacArthur has written that book that is very appropriate on that whole subject of finding God's will. You know, he says there, if you're saved, First, you've got to be saved to know God's will, right? Then you've got to be sacrificed, Romans 12, 1 and 2. You've got to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Thirdly, you've got to be spirit-controlled. I'm just running through this. But fourthly, you need to be satisfied, and that's 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. 
or we need to give thanks, then we need to be submissive, as it says in 1 Peter, mutually submissive to one another, not lifting our own selves up, but putting other needs more important than ourselves, and then we also need to be suffering. But I, I think of that ideal of God's will, and I think it's important, and he says, for this is God's will for you. That's what Paul says. This is God's will for you. And he says, this is your will specifically in the area of physical purity and relationships. He says, this is God's will. He says, your sanctity. Now grab that one because I believe that can change your whole outlook on this whole issue here. He says, I want you to know, I want you to be in the dead center of God's will. And God's will in the context here is that we would be sanctified. Now the word sanctification is very simple. We don't need to go into the, the whole theological background. But to be sanctified simply means to be set apart from sin to God. That's what it means. To be set apart from sin to God. It's actually the process of becoming holy. To be set apart from a lifestyle that we once lived in to God in which we now walk in him. Now, theologically, we would break down this whole doctrine of sanctification in, in maybe three ways. There's what we might call positional sanctification, okay? That's when you and I give our life to Jesus Christ. Or even Dewey, I think of the people who responded to the message of the word of God last Saturday night. Fifteen people responded. And when they responded to the gospel, they became positionally sanctified. That means right now, and I don't care what sin you have, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, right now he looks down on you and he can only see a pure vessel. Do you understand that? That he cannot look down and see sin in the sense that he's clothed us with the righteousness of Christ. But positionally we are sanctified. We're separated and we're pure unto God. And he does that for us and that's our position. Positional sanctification. Now we might not always be there in practice, but positionally we are always there. And the, what we have to do when we blow it, when we step out of it in practice, is confess our sin. But then there's also experiential sanctification, and that's what I'm talking about. There's a position that we have as Christ within the body, but there's also an experiential sanctification that is the practice and the lifestyle. And then the Bible also speaks of an ultimate sanctification, and we would just call that the process of glorification. That when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is, right? In other words, when we stand before Jesus Christ, it tells us in the book of Romans 8, 28 and 29 that he's going to conform us to the image of Christ, and when we see him, we'll be just like him. But here in this passage, he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. He's talking about experiential sanctification. Obviously, he's not referring to your position, and he's not referring to ultimate glorification he's talking about our position and he says I want you to live and I want you to be set apart from sin to God I want you to be holy people and he says this I want you to abstain it says from sexual immorality now you say what does it mean to abstain from sexual immorality very simply it means this to stay away from sexual sin to stay away from sexual sin. Now, people ask me this question all the time. How far is too far? I get that all the time. And no doubt if you're working with people, you do as well. How far is too far? And how far can I go? And I want you to know that I've read a bunch of trash that's been put in print by Christian authors. And I just, I don't even know a word. It's just frustrated. Maybe a word is... Uh, um, I don't even know, flabbergasted is that, I mean, just, I read and I'm like, this is unbelievable that Christian authors would speak on this whole idea of how far is too far. And I just want you to know, and I want you to change your thinking, that is the wrong question, okay? That is the wrong question. That, that is a question that we should never ask, how far is too far? Here's the question, and this is what the question should always be and when we speak of moral purity. Not how far is too far, but this. How can I be sanctified, separated from sin, and holy unto God? That's the question. The question never in the Christian life is how far can I go in this? No, the question is in a relationship is how can I be set apart, sanctified, and holy for God's use? And when we start teaching people to ask those kind of questions, we failed. Because Paul says this is the will of God, your sanctification. So when we ask how far is too far, that's not the proper question. The proper question is, is how can I be sanctified, separated from sin, and holy and unto God? I think you're familiar with that story. Maybe you've heard it before. I think it illustrates the point of the chariot race. 
when the king was looking to hire a chariot driver for himself. And so he interviewed three guys that would be able to drive his chariot. And he asked them all this question. He says, how far or how close can you bring my chariot to the edge of this cliff without putting it over the cliff? And the first guy responded, he thinks, king, he says, I think I could bring that chariot to one foot within falling over the cliff said thank you the second guy comes in he says king the king asked him the same question how far can you bring my chariot around this cliff without dumping me over second guy says king i could bring it within six inches of that cliff without dumping the chariot over the hill third guy comes in king asked him the same question how far you know the king asked him how far can you get this chariot without making it go over the edge and the third guy responded and he said why king why would i even want to come close i would want to stay as far away from the cliff as i possibly can and the king said, you're what? You're hired. That was his chariot driver. And I feel like we're that way with God. It's like, how far can I bring it to the edge of the cliff without falling off? And I want you to know that to me, this isn't a gray area at all. To me, God, to me, Paul says that this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain. Now you say, what does the word abstain mean? It means this. It means complete abstinence. Actually, it means total abstinence. And then it says, I want you to abstain from immorality. Now you say, what's immorality? And I think it's important that we define this. And then you tell me where the standard is. Because you know what? I'm not going to give you a standard today. I'm not going to put up some chart on the screen that tells you, you know, you can hold hands. Then you can kiss. Then you can give her a side hug. Then you can give her a peck on the, on the cheek. Then you can give her. I'm not going to tell you that. Because you know what? That, that, that's not the question here. You tell me. He says, I want you to abstain complete abstinence, total abstinence for immorality. Now what's immorality? Immorality can simply be find this way is any act or thought or thought that violates God's word any act or thought that violates God's word anything other than a monogamous marriage of a husband and wife that's immorality anything other than a monogamous marriage of a husband and wife he says I want you to just be abstained from that I don't want you, whatever is to be within the context of marriage, you leave it fair. In fact, it says in Ephesians 5.3, it says, don't even let immorality be even named among you. It says that in Colossians 3.5, therefore consider these things as dead. And then he says, immorality, impurity. You say, what a standard that is. That is a standard. You say, how can I keep that standard? Let's go to number two. What's the position? And that answers the question, how can I keep that standard? And there's three principles I want to give you on this. The position, how can I keep that standard? And he gives it to us right here in the text. He says in verse 4 that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And the principle number one is if you want to keep that standard, number one, control your body. Control your body. That's what he says. He says if you want to live up to that standard and not go over the line, then you need to control your body. Every individual must control their body. See, and I want you to know, doesn't our society say the exact opposite of that? The society says if it feels good, do it. Let's go. And they're totally controlled by their feelings. And God's saying to you, as the sons of light and as believers in the body of Christ, number one, if you're going to keep the standard, you've got to control your body. And I want you to know that's a direct antithesis to all that the world says, isn't it? What does the world care about that? But we're Christians. We're different. We're part of God's economy. And he says, if you want to be effective, if you want to keep this position, if you want to keep this standard, number one, you've got to control your body. And that's the, the passage that you looked at over in 1 Corinthians. Turn there for a second. 1 Corinthians. I mean, and you're familiar with this, but it, it's just illustrating of the point. 1 Corinthians 6, he's talking about, in the whole context there of... Verse 13, he says, yet the body is, is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Verse 13, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And then he says in verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin a man commits outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. You guys discussed that in full detail when Josh McDowell came. But look at 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is what? in you residing within you is the Holy Spirit whom you have from God and that you are not your own listen to me students you will be pure if you realize that the body that you are encased in is not your body it's not yours it's God's and the Holy Spirit lives within you and when you begin to realize that it's God and that the Holy Spirit is indwelling in you we'll think twice about that so he says, control your body. He says, verse 20, for you have been bought with a price. 
Therefore, glorify God in your body. If you're going to make it, then you got to control your body. And you got to realize that that's what he calls us to in the book of Thessalonians. He says there that we have, we must know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And what's the key there? Well, the key is the Holy Spirit. And the key is walking in the Spirit to be filled with the Spirit, to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us so that our body would come under the control and domination of the word. You're familiar with that scripture. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. <laughs> And Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to what? Thy word. And so we have to understand that we must control our body. So when I ask that question, how far is too far? You tell me. You make that standard. How far is too far? You tell me. One guy describes it as this. I'll get a little bit more specific. I asked one guy, what's how far is too far? He says this. If your motor's running, you've gone too far. Maybe that's a good safeguard huh if your motor's running you've gone too far in other words men if your motor is moving on you and you know what i'm saying and if it's taking a place that you know you shouldn't go then already you're too far already now again we can sin in thought as well i like josh mcdowell i think he's got a good thing on that and how far is too far he says don't light a fire that you can't what put out in other words don't be lighting a fire that's going to set a blaze you know, and that's the verse in Proverbs. Can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned? No. But we got to answer that question, how far is too far? And I think even better than that, those two definitions is 1 Corinthians 6.20, where it says, you have been bought with a price, therefore what? Glorify God in your body. And I just want you to know that as you guys date, and as the future is before you, realize this, men and women, that your body is not yours. It's not yours, it's God's. And I think if we even had a healthy understanding that it is God's, it would change the way we view our life in this. And so he says, I want you to know how to possess your body in sanctification and honor. The second reason that he gives under principle number two or point number two is first control your body. And secondly, don't act like the godless pagans in verse five. Don't act like the godless pagans. Look at verse five with me. It says, not in a lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Don't act like people who are in the world in a lustful passion. You know what lustful means? It just means a craving and it's, it's a desire that's out of control. And when you link up lustful, which is craving and desire that's out of control, you link that word with the word passion, which is the word pathos, which means excited emotion and overpowering urges. And so he says, don't act in a lustful passion in craving and out of control and in excited emotions and urges that are overpowering. He says, that's a characterization, a characterization of the unregenerate world who doesn't know God. And we know God. We know God. And he's because we've been redeemed by those things that we don't have to live in them. And that doesn't mean that the flesh isn't there and that Paul didn't know the pull of the flesh in Romans 7. He's just simply saying that we don't have to live that way. They turn over in Colossians uh, for an illustration of this. Book of Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Colossians chapter 3. He says, if you've been raised up with Christ, verse 1. And the, the, the meaning there is because you've been raised up with Christ. What do you mean raised up with Christ? Listen, the same, but I don't know if we always believe this. The same supernatural power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that lives within you through the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus Christ was raised up, then I want you to know that you and I who call Christ our own were raised up with him. And if he was buried, we were buried. And if he died, we died. And if he was raised, we were raised. So he says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. He says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. And then he says in verse 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. He says you're dead to those things. Now, I know sometimes it doesn't seem like they're dead, but he's saying you need to put into practice what's true in reality. They're dead. But I want to point out this in verse 7. And in them you also once, what? Walked. 
and you were living in them. He says, but you're not like that. He says, you used to be like that, but you're not like that anymore. That used to be the lifestyle of you when you were unregenerate. But he says, you're different now. And the plea here and back in Thessalonians is that don't act like the godless pagans who don't have a relationship with God. And because you and I have been redeemed, it now gives us the power to live a resurrected life. Look at over in the book of Titus to illustrate this further. Again, it's this whole idea that we don't need to live like the world because God redeemed us out of it. I love this in Titus 2.11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Okay, fantastic. That's super, right? But why did he do it? Look at verse 12. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. The reason that he redeemed us, the reason that the grace of God was brought to us is that we would now be resurrected in this new life with him and that we would be living different. You know, and one more scripture, turn back to 1 Corinthians 6. You know, I guess I always think about this because I had that guy on my uh, basketball team. You know, I don't know if I've told you this. I've used this illustration before. It just illustrates the point. I had the guy on my basketball team named Rod at Pierce Junior College, just right down here in the valley when I was playing at JC. And, I, and he was a Christian, and he was basically sleeping with his girlfriend and involved in immorality with her. And I said, Rod, I said, what are you doing? I said, you call yourself a Christian. We're trying to have a testimony on the team. And yet you're throwing your words in, the same thing I'm saying, and yet they're looking at you and they're seeing no difference in you than the difference of the people on the team. And they're going to go out and party and do all those things and you're even sleeping with your girlfriend. I said, you're a Christian? You name the name of Christ? I said, what are you doing? I'll never forget what he said to me. I said, how do you feel? He said this, quote, he says, I just do it and then I confess, end of quote. See, because you know why? Jesus was a credit card for him. Oh, he got his fire insurance, didn't he? Yeah, because he walked the aisle, he prayed the prayer, he signed on the dotted line. But you know what? I really seriously doubted if he ever knew the Savior. Because he was living in a continual state of sin with no guilt, and he was using Jesus Christ as a credit card that he could put into heaven and get his almighty uh, forgiveness from, right? And yet still live in a lifestyle. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look what it says in verse 9. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, or idolaters or adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? We understand that. But look at verse 11. I love this. And such were some of you. Did you get the point? He used to be like that. But when Jesus Christ made a difference in your life and when he made a difference in your heart, you're not that way. In fact, as I look back, you used to be like that. And praise God, you're not because he says in verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the reason we're not to live that way is, number one, we need to control our body. Number two, he says, don't act like the, the Gentiles. Don't act like the godless pagans who don't know God. And you and I, we know God. And so he pleads for us not to be involved in that. You know, some people's attitude, and maybe as much like Rod's, it goes like this. Forgiveness of sin, what a blessed condition. I can sin as I will and still have remission. Well, I don't think that's quite the attitude that a believer is to manifest. So he says, control your body. And I want to get to this one. Point number three under principle number two is don't defraud your brother or sister in the matter or in the Lord. Don't defraud your, and this is very clear, you guys, especially to you men. Look at verse six. He says there in first that's four, six, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. This word brother here, you say, what's he talking about? He's saying abstain. He's saying, you know, you need to be sanctified. You need to abstain from sexual immorality. You got to know how to possess your body in the right way. He goes, you can't live like the godless pagans. And he says, thirdly, he says, I don't want you to defraud your brother in the matter. Now this word brother here, it's important. It's, it's a generic term. It's referring to brother man, we might say that, or sister woman. 
It's a reference here, not so much to a brother in Christ, but a reference to all of mankind so that we could actually read the scripture this way and let no man transgress or defraud his brother or sister in the matter. And the reason we're to live pure and to live holy is we don't want to defraud our other brothers and sister in this matter of sexual and moral purity. The word transgress literally means to selfishly and greedily take some, something at someone else's expense. Men, don't defraud the sisters here. Don't greedingly take something at someone else's expense. And the word transgression carries the idea, and it speaks here of crossing the forbidden boundary and hence trespassing on territory which is not your own. And then he says, don't transgress or defraud your brother in the matter. And so it could be a brother or sister in the matter, I believe it's saying. And you know, men, we defraud girls all the time. We defraud girls all the time because we bond with them. We, we defraud them emotionally. We defraud them spiritually. We defraud them physically. When we break up, then there's big time defraud that sets in. And he says here in the text, don't transgress or defraud another sister in Christ. And I'm speaking to you of that in men. Namely, has it ever occurred to you men that the girl you're dating could be another man's future wife? Think about that. The girl you're dating, men, could be another man's future wife. And you better not transgress that boundary. You better not defraud that boundary. Because the girl that you're dating and the girl that you're saying you're loving could be another man's wife. And you know what? In some ways, we're all spiritual relatives, aren't we? Because we're all in the body of Christ. And when we transgress that line and when we cross over that line, we're transgressing on what could be another brother's wife. And so we can't defraud our sisters in that, men. So you say, how far is too far? You think about it. When you think, men, that you could be dating somebody else's wife if you don't have the ring on her finger and you haven't said the vow, then you tell me how far is too far. And let me tell you this. If you're single and you're, you're here and you're not dating anybody, somebody else could be dating your future wife. And I would think that you would want them to be pure with her because you might not even know who she is. I married my wife when she, she we went to the same high school and I didn't know her. Because I was a senior and she was a 10th grader, right? 10th graders, I don't talk to sophomores at that point, right? <laughs> See, but I mean, they kept her pure and I'm glad for that. So how far is too far? Then men always ask this, well, how should I treat a sister in Christ? Well, it's a gray area, isn't it? It's not a gray area. Get rid of that gray area stuff. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. You say, how should I treat her in a dating relationship? This is so clear. This is how you treat her, okay? You say, if, if, that's, if, if, if I don't want to transgress and defraud her because she could be somebody else's wife, how far is too far? Let me ask you a question. How do you treat her? I love this. In 1 Timothy 5, he says, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father to younger men as brothers. And watch this in verse 2. The older women, this is how we're to react. The older women as mothers and the younger women as what, men? Sisters in all what? Purity. Men, let me tell you something. The girls you're dating are sisters in the Lord. So don't transgress and step over and cross that boundary when she's a sister in the Lord. And then the guy asked me, well, what does it mean if she's a sister in the Lord? Well, wake up, men. It just means that you treat her with courtesy and with kindness and with gentleness. And you realize that she's a sister in the Lord and you do everything to preserve her purity. Okay? Now, let me say something. Let me ask you a question. When a couple goes too far physically, who is it? Who is it usually? What, what partner is the one who shuts it down physically? Who is it usually? It's the girl, isn't it? The girl's the one who's a little bit more sensitive to the Lord, isn't she, sometimes? She's the one who says, that's a little bit too far for me. And I want you to know that the Bible doesn't say that at all, men. The Bible, I want you to know, men specifically, holds you accountable and responsible for the moral purity of that relationship. Holds you accountable. You say, where do I get that? Ephesians 5. If it says in Ephesians 5 that a man is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, and if a man is to purify his wife through the washing of the water with the word, then that means that one of the prerequisites within headship for the man, as he and you're saying you're not married. I, I can handle you're not married, but don't you think you still need to be pursuing those qualities of a purifying love? And that means that a man, when he's married to his wife, will do everything to preserve her purity. And I want you to know, men, don't make the girl responsible for the standard. I want you to know before God, you are responsible for the standard. And I get, frankly, a little bit tired of girls 
girls tell me, well, the guy did this. Look, men, you're responsible. And your goal in that relationship, and although you may not be married, should be leading that sister in all purity, that you would be purifying her and that you would be causing her to become more holy and more blameless in the ways of this world. And I'm afraid that we've thrown that one out. And the world might not look at it that way, but Jesus does. And Jesus says that his role for you men is that you would be purifying in the relationship. And yeah, I know it takes two, but I always hold the man responsible. And I've been very stern with our men in the college department. And I hold them morally responsible for the purity of our women in the group. And you know what? They better not blow it. And that's the kind of standard we want. Because, you know, we're violating and we're defrauding people right and left. We're damaging people. It's like you say, Dewey, Humpty Dumpty on the wall, right? He falls off, but the problem is, is he gets shattered on the ground. It's a little hard sometimes to put the pieces back together. And I want you men to know, don't transgress or defraud the brother or sister in this matter. And you say, how do I treat him? You treat her as a sister in Christ. I think it's pretty clear. You treat her as a sister in Christ in all purity, and that will tell you how you're to respond around people. This is why I would never teach a dating relationship in my college department. What is that? I just think if two people are spirit-filled in the control and power of the Holy Spirit, then they'll know how to respond. And if a man goes into a relationship and he starts dating a girl, and he says, I want this to be a spirit-controlled relationship, and I want the focus to be on Jesus Christ and how we can serve the kingdom better, then you know what? We don't even have to talk about this issue. You. But I always find that it's that. And let me just close real quickly with this. What's the purpose for these things? He doesn't just give us these things in general. What's the purpose? And I'll finish up right here real quick. What's the purpose? And then maybe this answers the question, why keep the commands? Okay, let me just say something very gently here, okay? I know Josh McDowell told you about AIDS and told you about VD and told you about all the diseases that come and the sexually transmitted diseases. And you know what? That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. But I want you to know here in the context, it's a little different. Why do you keep these commands? Because it says in verse 7, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but what? Sanctification. Look, don't, and I don't, I don't say this. I just say this this way. Yeah, you might get a disease, but you even know what's bigger than that is the fact that God's called you for the purpose of purity. And he's called you for the purpose of purity. You don't have to worry about so much getting the disease. Why don't you worry about being sanctified before the Lord? And let me say one last thing. Do you know why we keep these commands? Because the Lord's the avenger of all these things, okay? He's the avenger of all these things. You know, I crack up when you see on the soap operas and all the TVs and all the people sleeping around and all the men leaving their husband or... No, say that again. Well, maybe, maybe, right? You know, and they always do this adulterous situation like nobody knows. Well, let me tell you something. God knows, men. God knows what you do. God knows the hairs on your head. And, you know, I get, I'm going to be honest with you. I get a little sick and tired of this word accountability. Well, who you are accountable to. You know what I think about accountability? And I'll say this with preference and deference and kindness because I think accountability is good and it's called for in the body of Christ. But, frankly, I get a little bit sick of this word accountability because you know what it is? Oftentimes it becomes an appeasement for people to be patted on the back for their sin. And, and so yeah, I remember one guy, he blew it with a girl and he says, oh no, I have to tell my discipler. Now that's okay, but you have to tell God. You're accountable to God, man. And you might have to tell somebody else and we need that. And I'm not trying to say that you understand it, but I'm afraid we're patting people on the back. That's why when people come and they ask me to disciple them, I say, no, you don't want me to disciple you. Because if you really wanted me to disciple you, I will be in your kitchen. You know, and they don't want that. And oftentimes it's they just want somebody for an appeasement for their sin. And I want you to know when we speak of accountability, men, yes, you need other brothers in the body of Christ. But you know what? God is the avenger of all these things. And he knows what you do. See, that will change your life, men, if his eyes upon you. And we need to walk in the fear of the Lord. And if wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, if we realize that his eye was upon us, it would stop us from a lot of things. So he's the avenger of all these things, and he's called us for the purpose of purity. Can we hold that standard? Let me ask you again at the beginning. How far is too far? I don't know if I'm going to answer it for you. Because I don't know if it, if, it, if, if it, okay, you can hold her hand, then you can peck her on the, no, 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 come on. Okay? You answer the question, how far is too far? Just know this, that God's called you to be set apart, sanctified, separated from sin, and holy unto God. And if you realize that he's called you for that, and realize this, men and women, that the only reason that he would ever call a man and a woman together is for one purpose, is that they would be able to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in a God-honoring way and bring more people in the kingdom together than they ever could apart.
That's the only reason why two people should get together is that they can honor the Lord with their relationship. Think through those things. Let's pray.